Thank you, worship team. An appropriate prayer as we come to that point in our service when we exalt the word of God. Our passage this morning, the text of Harrison sermon is Psalm 1. So as a congregation, let us read this psalm in unison together. And so now I would ask if you are able, if you would please stand. Reading together. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in his greatest fears, nor sits in his chief scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the way knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. May we find our delight in it. You may be seated. Oh, thank you, Ken. Well, good morning again. We are uh, diving into a summer in the Psalms with, uh, of course, the very first one out of 150. We're not going to go through all 150 this summer, so, but, but it would be great to be able to do that over a series of summers. Uh, Psalm 1 um, has been spoken of as the gateway uh, to all of the Psalms, and, and I can see that. Uh, someone else, uh, James Montgomery Boyce, I believe it was, said that the rest of the Psalms are an exposition of this one, an explanation of this one. You know, you might, yeah, maybe, but if we understand everything that's in Psalm 1, then we begin to see how the rest of them really flow directly straight from this, this beautiful uh, poetic song from David. Um, as we dive into it, I've got to ask you a question there. What do you delight in? What brings you delight? Yesterday we were at the, it was yesterday? Day before. I think it was Friday. We were at the mall. Not my favorite place to go. I don't know that I've ever delighted in going to the mall. Confession. But what I did delight in was something that I'd seen on my Instagram that Chick-fil-A has peach milkshakes. <laughs> Amen? Does anyone else here delight in peach milkshakes or is it just me? Yes! The rest of them can go by the wayside. I'm spoiled forever. And I get there and I'm thinking, I really want that peach milkshake. And then I was reminded that um, that, that was not in the spending plan of my uh, diet. Now, I want to remind you that diet is just the word die with a T appended to it. <laughs> There's no peach milkshakes. Even though you make the case that a peach milkshake is really a fruit drink because it has peach in it, still the answer was no. <laughs> what do you delight in? Our delight has to be in something that lasts a lot longer 
than a peach milkshake or than anything else that we could have here on this earth. When we dive into this psalm, we begin to see that our delight has to be in our Lord. You say, well, what we see right away, Harrison, is that it's about the law, delighting in the law. Well, yeah, but as we go forward, we'll see that it's really all about Jesus. And that way, it's so much like the Sermon on the Mount that we just came out of, right? The Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew, begin with what? The Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes begin with, blessed is the man. Over and over and over again, for 10, 11, 12 verses. Blessed is the man. And in all of those, what we discovered as we went through the Sermon on the Mount is that none of us keep those perfectly. But there is one that does. So the, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, really point us back to Jesus Christ. And so it is with a psalm. It points us back to Christ again and again and again. He is the hero of the New Testament. He's the hero of the Old Testament. He's the hero of this gateway to the Psalms, Psalm 1. Jesus himself in Luke 24 said, Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Will you go to the Lord with me now in prayer? Father, as we dive into this gateway to the Psalms, Lord, I pray that you would fulfill your word to us. Lord, that you would pour your grace out on, on us. Lord, that you would help us to delight in you above all else. Father, if we were to try this on ourselves, we would fail miserably. We need you. Lord, we have you. We thank you for that. Father, I pray for this one that would open up your word and proclaim your gospel this morning. I pray, Father, that you would take this uh, very broken vessel and that you would pour out good, clean, living water for the good of your people and for your glory. In the name of Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen. When, when David dives into this and he says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, he's talking about Christ to begin with. Now, yes, he's talking about you and I, but he's talking first about Jesus Christ. Christ is the chief character in this beautiful song. Not just as an example, not just as an example of, of good morality or moralism, not just that. The Word of God is much bigger, and we'll get to that in a few moments. If all we're looking for is a leader that can give us great moralisms, then we can, we can look much farther than Jesus. I mean, my grandmother could have taught us a lot about morality. I mean, Joseph Smith could teach us a lot about morality. Dave Ramsey could teach us a lot about financial morality, or John Maxwell about, about leadership morality, or Steph Curry could teach us about how to win championships in athletic morality. Go Warriors. So there's a, lot of, there's a lot of people that could teach us about different kinds of morality. This has got to be about much more than just how do we keep the law? How do we dot our I's and cross our T's to make sure we have uh, prosperity at the end of life? There's got to be more to it than that. And Jesus is, is, of course, much more than just a man that gives us a good example. He is God himself. He is the very word himself. He is the only one that is the keeper of the law. But as I said, there's, there's Christ, who's the main character, but then there's you and me. We're also the characters in this song. It's a twofold thing, where even as we're, we're called 
to, as, as Christians, we're called to be in Christ. So in the, in the first chapter of Ephesians, for example, you see over and over again, depending on what translation you're looking at, six or seven times, that we are in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. That's your position. That's your chief identity. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. If you're a believer, you're in Christ and Christ is in you. So one of my great hopes in life from the time I've been a believer until the day I breathe my last breath is to help us understand who we are in Christ and who he is in us and then how he's called us to worship and to live. So this is all about Christ, but it's also all about you and I. He, he tells us really quickly, <clears throat> losing the voice here. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the, the seat of sinners nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. So his, his delight isn't there, but his delight is in the law, the law of the Lord. Now, as the, the way this passage has usually uh, been preached or taught, <clears throat> as, I, if I, as I've heard it over the years, has been something like this. Uh, you've got this law of God, you've got the Ten Commandments. I'm from Alabama. So there in Alabama, it was posted on the wall of every classroom and in front of courthouses and everywhere you went when I was growing up. That's changed now, but that's the way it was. And so I thought that's all there was to God. I didn't grow up in a Christian home or a home that, that taught us anything about a sacrificial love or, or the atonement of Jesus Christ. I knew that Jesus had something to do with Easter and Christmas, but honestly, I kid you not, I couldn't have told you much about either one, except that on Christmas you got presents, and on Easter you had to go to, to church. Missed everything else about Jesus. And this has to be something more. So if, if, we're all, if all we're looking at, though, is, is the law, uh, and all we know about the law is the Ten Commandments, then we're going to live a life full of futility, uh, tension, um, anxiety, because we're, we're going to try really hard to keep all those things. I mean, think about it. The first one, you shall have no other God before me. You shall have no other gods before me. When was the last time you broke that one? Last week? Yesterday? This morning? Um, let me see, it's 11.40. How about 11.30? I mean, really, when was the last time you broke that one? Every one of us breaks out on a regular basis when we make ourselves God or we make someone else to be God in our thinking and our life. We all do that. You shall not make for yourselves an idol. We'll talk about idols in a little while when we talk about um, what we delight in. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Folks, we're, we're done. We're toast by this time. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. And we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, that if we even hate our brother, uh, there's, we've committed murder in our heart. Or, or you shall not commit adultery. If we've even looked at a woman or a man with lust in our heart, so we've committed adultery. And then we see further in the Sermon on the Mount that if we've fought, fail, uh, failed at any of those, then we've, we've failed at all of them. So if we're dependent on keeping that law as the law, with every jot and tittle, then we're, we're doomed. In Ephesians, in chapter 2, in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no man can boast. 
So you say, well, that, that seems to be a little bit at odds with what David is writing here in his song. Well, it, it seems to be, but it isn't really. We look at Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh. Paul is acknowledging there in Romans 8 that we can't keep the law, but that's not what the law, the law wasn't intended to be something that if we keep it, we have life. Because we can't keep it. What it does do is drive us to Christ. It gives us a standard for holy living as well. points us to God. The law is beautiful in that way. The law is worthy of our delight. But the law was more than just a list of do's and don'ts. When we look at the law here, we have to understand that, uh, that David is speaking not just of the Ten Commandments. He's speaking of the Torah. Uh, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And in those first five books of the Old Testament, we see the character of God. We don't just see Leviticus where everybody uh, falls off the edge of the flat earth in their um, plan to read through the Bible in, in 365 days. You, we, we, get, we, we dive into Leviticus, we dive into Numbers, Deuteronomy, Exodus, Genesis, and we discover the character of God. We see, for example, even in the the creation story of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we, we see God's creation, that he has created us in his image, and he calls it very good. We see his power. We see his authority. We see his sovereign nature over everything. We see the creation. We also see the fall, as Adam and Eve want to be like God, and so they sin. We see the fall of man. We also see redemption, restoration, as God takes an animal and kills an animal, spills blood, and covers Adam and Eve with clothing to cover their shame. They were naked and, and afraid and, and ashamed all at one time because of their sin. We also see glory as we go through in, in the Evangelion in, in chapter 3 when he, he uh, expresses the curse on Adam, on Eve, and on the serpent. And he says to the serpent that, yes, you're going to bruise the offspring's heel, but that offspring's going to crush your head. And see, so with this promise of restoration and glory even in that, all in just in the first three chapters of Genesis. So it's more than just a, a list of do's and don'ts he's talking about. He's speaking of the whole, the whole law of God. In James, in chapter, chapter 1, James, the little brother of Jesus, he said, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer but for, who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So what's this perfect law, this law of liberty, that James is talking about. Well, the perfect law that brings freedom is the way another translation puts it. That perfect law is none other than Jesus Christ. He's telling us the same thing that David is telling us in Psalm 1. Delight yourself in the Lord. Look into the perfect law that brings freedom. Delight yourself in the law. Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in Christ. Our delight has to be in something more than our ability or our relying on keeping the letter of the law as a good Pharisee or a religious Christian. There has to be something more for us than that. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. The righteous shall live by by faith. 
So we see expressed not just in, in Galatians, not just in, in the Gospels, and not just in Psalms, but even in Genesis that we're called to live by faith in Christ and Christ alone. What do you delight in? I've got to ask it again. What do you delight in? Our delight has to be in something eternal, something that lasts. Delight is something that's very different than duty or fear. Now we see duty and we see we see fear slash respect even in our relationship with God. Those are there for sure, but our delight has to be in something different. We're told to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's a delight to that. What is what's fear? Fear is, well, fear is what you feel if you're out on the sea, the ocean, or a big lake, and you see a storm coming from the distance. And you know what that storm is bringing? That it's going to bring high waves, strong winds, maybe hail, and it's thunder, lightning, and you're in a small boat. What are you going to do? Well, your heart rate's going to go up, and you're going to take that throttle, and you're going to shove it to the floor. And you're going to make a beeline for the shoreline, right? Because you know that you've got to get off of that, that water. Why? Because there's a certain element of fear, respect. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But God calls this to something even higher than that, even higher than duty. What's duty? Well, duty is what you might feel on a Monday morning around my house. Uh, when it's about 7.30 in the morning and you hear the garbage truck coming down the street and you know that you didn't put the garbage cans out the night before and it's pouring down rain and it's freezing cold and you're barefoot but you know you better get the garbage cans to the street. That's duty. It's not fun in the doing of it but you know it's going to stink if you don't get it done. That's, that's duty. Delight is something, is something greater Delight, uh, for me, for example, delight would be uh, a sunset over the desert, over the mountains, over the beach. Delight is uh, delight's being in the kitchen for me. Uh, not long ago, Isaac and I uh, found some fresh trout, and, and we prepared pecan-crusted trout for Sandy for Mother's Day. For me, that's delightful, and it was good. What is delight that delights you? There's got to be something even greater than that if we're looking at this passage and we understand it rightly. Delight is a motivation that's born of, born of love. The love you have for God and the love he has for you. We know from 1 John that we love because he first loved us. It begins even with his love. What, what we delight in leads us. It influences us. It it, it directs us. It, what we delight in is what we become. What we delight in has our heart. It feeds our soul. And what we delight in is what we feed. And unless, unless that delight, that ultimate delight that we have, unless that ultimate delight is in Christ and Christ alone, then what we are delighting in will enslave us. It will destroy us. And it will destroy all those around us. We have to delight in Christ, in Christ alone. Our delight is closely tied to our identity and the identity that we embrace. To delight is more than just to, to memorize or to, to know something intellectually. To, to obey is just a shadow and a duty, but to delight is, is the movement and the substance of the soul that stands the test of time and, and, and temptation 
and suffering. God calls us to delight in him. What gives you delight? His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. What gives you delight? Tim Keller says that the the three great idols of our age are power, sex, and, and fame. That's true of all of us. There's a little bit of that in all of us more of some than others, but there's a little bit of that in all of us. There was some of that in in Adam and Eve, even way back in that incident in the garden. Fame, for example, how does that bear itself out in our lives? Well, it's not just just fame that you might see on the big screen uh, or or fame on an athletic field or fame on a a platform. It's it's the fame of, of guarding our reputation. It's the fame of seeking the approval of others or the applause of others, even if it's just uh, your, your parents or your kids or your wife or your husband or those that you're in relationship with here. That, that's that idol of fame. We want that. But Galatians, Galatians 1.10 says, for, I, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Fame. Another one is sex. You don't have to go far to discover that sex is an idol of our age, right? With sex as an idol of our age, we use people and we abuse people. Do you know that today... 2022, that there are about 40 million people enslaved around the world. 40 million. Drew prayed about the end of one type of slavery here in our nation, but there are about 40 million people enslaved around the world. 32 million of those are enslaved sexually. Men, women, and children. Captured, taken, enslaved used, abused, thrown away. Every year, between 600,000 and 800,000 men, women, and children are taken across international borders in sexual slavery. Some 14 to 17,500 are brought into this nation and sexual trafficking. When you think of pornography, men and women, remember that. Because that's where that money is made. Through the use and abuse and enslavement of men, women, and children. For the idolatry that is fed through pornography. Where do we find our delight? The third one that that Keller mentions in his book, Counterfeit Gods, if you haven't read it, grab it. It's a great read. Um, It's power. Power. We, We live really close, and some of us work in 
the most powerful city in the world, in Washington. And that impacts our whole region, right? So it's, it's no secret that that would be a huge idol for those in this region, even, even us, even all of us. Power works, it works itself out through control, through micromanagement, through running people over as long as you can come out on top. It's a place where the ends justify the means, where I could deceive and, and trick and manipulate and lie as long as I get what I want. It's where the ends justify the means. You have that power. You see in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, where David, the king, the king of Israel, when other kings had gone out to war, David stayed home. That was his first mistake. He stayed home, and he gets up from his couch, and he goes up to the roof, and he looks out across the alley or across the, the way, and he sees a woman bathing on a roof down the road. And she was delightful for him to look at, and so he sends somebody to take her, sexual trafficking, to take her and bring her to his house where he takes her, and she becomes pregnant. Because David's concerned about his reputation, because he is engaged in his idolatry of sex and power, and because he has the power to do it, he sends for Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband. Because he's hoping that if Uriah will, will come into his, his house, he's missed his wife, he's been off at war, where David should have been, and if Uriah will come in to the house, then well, lo and behold, everybody will think that the baby that is in Bathsheba's womb is actually Uriah's baby, and no one will know any different. And David is willing to go to great deceptive lengths to guard his reputation, and he has the power to do it. Uriah is a man of honor and a man that is loyal to his king, and he refuses to go into his own home while his brothers are out at war, and so he sleeps outside. David will not be thwarted with his plan to guard his own reputation, and so he he sends to his commanders, and he has Uriah put out on the front lines. And then everybody else is to draw back. And Uriah is going to be out there at the front. And who's going to take the arrows from the enemies? Well, Uriah. And Uriah is killed. And David thinks that he has gotten away with it, and he brings Bathsheba into his home as one of his, one of his wives. But the prophet Nathan in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, comes to David and he tells him a story of someone that's stolen something, a lamb, and David is just livid. That man should be punished. And David says, thou art the man. And David recognizes, recognizes that he is the one that is guilty. Then in guarding his reputation and giving in to his idolatry of sex and his idol of power, he has not only stolen a man's wife, but he has had the man killed. What do you delight in? Prior to that, David was delighting in his power and sex and fame. At this point, something turns, and David repents, and David weeps, and David writes another psalm after this, Psalm 51. And here we see what the Lord delights in. in. Psalm 51, beginning of verse 16. This is where David has confessed his sin before the Lord, his sin with Bathsheba and his sin with Uriah. And he says, For am I now, or so he says, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare 
your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I, will, I would give it to you. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. In other words, Lord, you're not going to be content with just my religious observances. He goes on, and he says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. David's heart has been broken as he has realized that he has sinned against the Lord. He says, against you and you only have a sin. He knows that he has sinned against God. Bathsheba, yes. Uriah, yes. The people of Israel, yes. But he sinned against God. And his heart is broken. And the Lord is pleased with a broken and contrite heart. God delights in our humility, my friends. Because it's in, in that humility when we begin to worship Christ above all else. The Lord is pleased and delights in, in faith, faith that is in Christ alone. Hebrews 11 says that without faith it is impossible to please God. Not faith in, in our business acumen, not faith in our political manipulations or our power to control, not, not faith in our ability to bring about desired outcomes, all dressed up in a form of a spirituality that, that denies the power of God in 2 Timothy in chapter 3, beginning of verse 2. This is Paul writing to young Timothy, a young pastor, the pastor of the church at Ephesus, in fact. He says, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That is ugly. It's ugly stuff, isn't it? But then he goes on, comma, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. There's a sense in which we take our idols and, uh, and we take them, we take our idols and we, we dress them up in religious clothing. And we say, look what a good boy I am. The ends justify the means because I really want religious stuff. And look at the religious stuff I, I give you. It's, you know, it's like, it's like taking a, a dead fish that you find on the seashore and, and coating it with a chocolate glaze and then serving it to your family. That's just gross, isn't it? That's disgusting. But that's what that is. When we take any of our idols and any of our earthly strengths and we say, I'm just going to dress them all up in spiritual clothing and present them to the Lord as an offering. God wants more from us than that. He's not interested in our faith and our athletic prowess, or our beauty, or our speaking skills, or our debating proficiency, our intelligence, or our personal discipline, but faith in Christ alone. In Philippians in chapter 3, we see Paul talking about his, his acumen, his strengths, his skills, his intelligence, his debating proficiency, if you will. He's talking about all of it, how great he is. Then he comes to some beautiful conclusions, beginning of verse 3 of, of chapter 3 of Philippians. For we are the circumcision, that is, we're the ones that keep the law. We worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself, listen, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. This is Paul's resume. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, I'm a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He puts it all aside, and he's not going to delight in that any longer. Indeed, I count everything, he goes on, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. My friend, that's the delight. He's delighting in Christ Jesus, his Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness on my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. When he says he counts them as rubbish, the, the Greek word is dung, D-U-N-G, and everything that that means. He counts all those other things, all those great strengths that he has as just dung, and he puts them all as, aside compared with the, with the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Paul is saying to the people of Philippi and to you and I today that there's one thing that's worthy of our greatest delight, and that is Christ himself. Our delight motivates us. We chase after and we go to great lengths to feed our delights. And we even get really uncomfortable, even angry when they are exposed or they are hindered. Everything we delight in, my friends, everything you delight in, everything I delight in, everything that we delight in, more than we delight in Christ, will enslave us. And it will destroy us. And it will destroy all those around us. Our delight has to be in Christ and Christ alone. He is the only one that is worthy. And yes, even in that, we will fall far short. That is why the tree here is so critical. This tree that, that we look at here that, that David sings of, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you three trees here, okay? There's three trees in view in this place. The first, yes, there's an earthly tree here. Uh, an earthly tree that's, that's a, a, a principle. It's not a promise. All theologians agree it's not a promise. It is a general principle here. It is a general result that if we live our lives in this way, then generally speaking, we will have prosperity. We will be like a tree planted by rivers of water where that, that, that yields its fruit in its season. All that he does prospers. And if we don't, then it's a general principle that we'll not have that. So yes, there is that, that general principle there. But here's a question for you. Do you know of anyone, do you know of anyone that has rejected Christ completely very vocally, publicly rejected Christ, and yet it seems like everything they touch, like Midas, turns to gold. Do you know anybody like that? Yes, sure we do. We all do. Or anyone, do we know anyone that seems to have, as best we know, they've, they've delighted in the Lord, and they've lived in this way, and yet they've suffered horribly. They've lost loved ones. They've lost family. They've suffered illness, sickness, pain. They're like Job, a righteous man that lost his farm and his children. Do we know people like that? Sure, we know people like that. If we don't know them here in the United States, I assure you, there are 
billions, millions of those people around the world that suffer in ways that we only imagine and yet walk closely with Christ. If we look at prosperity as only financial prosperity and only the prosperity that we will have here on earth and that we're going to have it if we make the right decisions and we live a good life, my friends, we're believing a lie. It's a facade. There's more here than just a financial wealth, prosperity here on earth. Nothing wrong with wealth. Nothing wrong with prosperity. But we have to delight in something more. The world we live in today will typically not reward you for delighting in the Lord. You will probably lose, if you're in business, you'll probably lose some contracts if you make it known how much you delight in the Lord. You might lose family. You might lose control, promotions. You might lose friends. Probably will. You might lose some earthly influence. If you don't believe it, just look at those um, actors, actresses, people that have claimed Christ. And you watch what has happened to them in their career afterwards. Prosperity can't be the goal of our life. There has to be something deeper, something eternal. C.S. Lewis said that God whispers to us in our pleasures. But he shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. We spend so much of our life trying to plan out how we're going to avoid suffering in hard times, don't we? Yet it is in that suffering in those hard times. That's where Christ shouts to us. I've had hard times in life, and so have you, where we would never want to go through those again, and we would never wish those on anybody else. And yet the depths to which Christ takes us in the midst of those hard times, you wouldn't trade for anything in the world. Because that's where you get to know the face of your Savior. You hear the beating of his heart, and you begin to delight in him in a different way. And that takes us back to the one that suffered on our behalf. It takes us back to Jesus. You see another tree, a second tree, is a tree that's planted by rivers of living water in the new heaven and the new earth. You're living in an already and a not yet. The psalmist is pointing us towards heaven, towards a living water, streams of living water, that if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you will drink from forever and ever and ever. And that will make the prosperity that you might have hoped for here on earth, well, seem like rubbish. There's a third tree. There's a third tree here, a tree that that grew tall, a tree that was cut down, and a tree that was fashioned into beams, one upright beam and one cross piece. And on that tree, there's one that took the curse of the law for you and for me, and he took all of the things that we screwed up, all of our sin, all of our wrong delights, all of our idolatries. And he's taken it himself, onto himself. And he's taken it to the cross. And there he's paid the penalty that was due to you and to me. That we might have life forever. For God demonstrated his love for us in this, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We delight in Christ, the one that gives us streams of living water with him forever. He is worthy.
of your delight. So what we have to do, not, not delight in, in doing it right, not in delight and we thought it right or we said it right or we meditated on it rightly, but we delighted Jesus who rightly did it all that we might have life. The first is so much pressure and futility. And the second, the second is grace. As Bono says, grace makes beauty out of even our ugly things. Father, thank you for your grace. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying that we might have life forever. Thank you for transforming our heart that we might delight in you above everything else and anything else here on this earth. Lord, when everything else fades away and there is nothing left, there is still you. And you are the lifter of our heads. You are the one that we delight in. Oh, Father God, would you make it so here in our church, in our lives as individuals, that we would delight in you to such a degree that our community would see, would see you. O oh, Christ our Lord, in his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us and sing?